hey, uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here with James and some others, and we're grateful to have you with us, uh, whether you're in person, whether you're joining us online today, uh, as we are in the final week of a series that we have entitled Adulting. Now, if, if you're just joining us, maybe you've been away for a little bit, you're like, what is this all about? Uh, adulting, of course, is just a term that is used in our culture to describe activities that we engage in, oftentimes mundane, boring kind of things that nobody wants to do, but like you do them now because you're grown. And you didn't do it when you were a kid, you didn't do it when you're in adolescence, but it's like somebody's got to do it now, you're the grown up now, so you're going to do these things. Now, we've entitled this series Adulting because in this series we've been working through the New Testament book of Colossians. And the book of Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this young adolescent church about what it looks like to grow up in Jesus, about what it looks like to be a spiritual adult, to adult in Christ. And so each week we're just taking some time and going, hey, what is the way that Paul is calling us to think if we're going to be grown up? What is the way that he's calling us to behave if we're going to be grown up? So we're going to take a minute and pray and invite God to be part of this, and then I will share with you why you should feel sorry for me. Now, why? Thank you, Leah. I, I get an aw. Everybody else laughs at me, you know. If you, should, if you laugh at your pastor, when you should be sympathetic, you sh- it should give you cause to question your eternal destiny. I'm just saying, all right? So everybody give me an aw. Thank you. All right, I feel better now. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Um, we want to pray for our time together. Um, also want to pray for the Coopers. If uh, you are not aware, Jonathan passed away yesterday. Um, Jonathan and, and his family have uh, worshipped here at Faith for a number of years. Over the summer, he had a significant decline in his health related to neurological issues. And over the last week, um, declined even further, very rapidly. And so yesterday, uh, Jonathan passed away. Uh, For Jonathan, that's probably the best thing that could have happened. He is more alive than he has ever been. Uh, If you knew Jonathan, he's shouting and dancing right now. (laughs) Um, For Princess and, and for their kids, this is just a really, really hard time. Uh, for people who knew and loved Jonathan, this is a hard time. So we want to pray for them and our time together, and then we'll, we'll jump into our last week here in this series. Father, thank you so much for Jonathan. Thank you just for his spirit of joy. I can remember sitting with him in a group home this summer, and him just telling me about how good Jesus is to him. Father, thank you that his suffering, his pain, his journey, his race is run. Um, but for Princess and, and Hansis and Thania and, and Nathan, this is just a difficult season. And so, Father, I pray in a way that only you can, that you would meet them, that you would comfort them, that they would sense your presence and your power with them, and that in the days and weeks to come, that you would, you would begin to move them along the road towards healing. 
fathers, we just consider words that you inspired Paul to write to this church and to us. Please open our minds and our hearts to you and to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So with this series, what we did is we took the book of Colossians and we kind of broke it up into six different sections and we said to the speaker each week, hey, here's your section. Talk about what it looks like to adult in Jesus from something in your section. Well, this week's section was basically the whole of chapter four. And if you're familiar with chapter four, you know it really has two parts. The first part is all about what it looks like to share our faith well. And then the second part is kind of Paul's final greetings to that church. And just being honest, I would have preferred to preach on the first part. The trouble with that, though, is, is just a little better than two months ago, Pastor Eric preached on what it looks like to share our faith. And so I felt like, gosh, it's kind of like a little too soon to go back to the well on this. I, I, I probably need to preach on the other section, but I want to preach on the other section. All right, and, and, and th there are a couple of reasons why I didn't want to preach on the other section. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read through the other section, and you can try and guess why it was maybe I didn't want to preach on the other section, and then I'll tell you why. So here we go. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, picking up at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who was called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God. They have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and in Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see that you complete the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, am writing this greeting in my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, a couple reasons I wasn't excited about preaching this passage. First one, all those crazy, difficult to pronounce biblical names, right? Because there's nothing quite as fun standing up in front of a group of people live and who knows how many people watching online and trying to pronounce a bunch of difficult biblical names and getting one of them wrong and looking stupid. Nobody wants that. Although, this is for free, all right? Here's, here's the preacher's trick to pronouncing biblical names. Just pronounce it with confidence, all right? You just pronounce it like you know what you are talking about, and people who know how to pronounce it correctly will be like, I've been pronouncing it wrong all this time, all right? In fact, a number of years ago, my, my, my wife and I were leading a small group study in our home, and it was, um, it was on the book of Malachi, 
And one of us, I won't say who because I don't want to incriminate the guilty party, one of us told the group that it's pronounced Malachi. We're going to study the book of Malachi, the first Italian prophet. And for, for, for weeks, pronounces Malachi until one day my, you know, Laura, you know, like let's slip that she had, I'm sorry, I wasn't supposed to say her name. Um, it was like, actually, it's pronounced Malachi. And, and like multiple people in the group were like, seriously? I've been pronouncing it wrong all this time, you know? So you just pronounce it with confidence. People will think you are right and they are wrong. But I don't want, want to deal with biblical names, but the, here's the other thing. Like in this, this the, the last part of the letter, it's like, greet this person. And this person says hello and this person says hey. And it just, it just feels like this. Like Paul's just taking care of business and it doesn't have much teeth to it. And th th these are the parts of those, the, 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 the epistles that people tend to either skip or just kind of read through mindlessly. And then the next thing you know, you're in First Thessalonians. But again, Pastor Eric stole the topic I wanted to preach on, all right? So when you see him, you can refer to him as thieving rascal, all right? And it left me with this. So I started doing all kinds of research trying to figure out, okay, where do I want to go with this? And as I did, I actually found myself pleasantly surprised by a couple of truths that just kind of rose up to the surface. And so I want to share with you today just two truths about community and, and the role that community plays in us adulting. Just two truths about community, all right? The first truth is found in the crew. It's not the truth itself, but the first truth is found in the crew that Paul ran with, the people who Paul did life with, the people who Paul shared the, the greatest amount of his time and who he gave the greatest influence in his world to. See, all of us, we've got a crew. All of us have people in our lives who, who we have really just put at the center of our worlds. And as we look at who Paul did life with, in part it's designed to get us to think about who we are doing life with. And so before we begin and, and just kind of look at who Paul was running with, and we'll come back to this in a, in a little bit, but just let me ask you to think about who are the people in your crew? Who are the people who you are doing life with? Who are the people at the center of your world who get the best of your time, who have the greatest amount of influence in your life. The people Paul is running with, they are spiritual beasts. The, the, the people he is doing life with, they are serious about growing in their faith themselves. They are just passionate about seeing the kingdom of heaven come to bear on the world around them. Like Paul will talk about Tychicus, and he calls him a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. When Paul is going from church plant to church plant to church plant that he planted, and he's collecting a special offering from these plants and, and taking this money to Rome to help the church who's, who's starving to death because there's a famine there, Tychicus is the guy who comes with him. When Paul is imprisoned in Rome and he can't go and check in on these plants and he's worried about how these people are doing, Tychicus is the guy who goes, checks in on them, lets them know how Paul is doing, lets Paul know how they're doing. Paul's like, let me tell you, this guy, he is like a brother to me. He is faithful. As I've been chasing after Jesus, he's keeping up with me step for step. Or Paul will say, hey, let me tell you, 
about Aristarchus. The first time we meet Aristarchus is in Ephesus. Again, Paul planted churches all over the place. He planted one in Ephesus, and then he pastored that church himself for a number of years. Now, the, the church did incredibly well, grew like crazy. So much so that people who, who these silversmiths who made silver idols for the Greek god Artemis, they're losing business. As Paul church, as his church grows, their businesses shrink. And eventually gets to the point where they're mad. And so you got these silversmiths who gather up this mob. They start a riot in the name of religion and in the name of Artemis. They, they, they go looking for Paul. They're going to do him in. Instead, they find Aristarchus, who's been helping Paul. And they grab him and they drag him into their Artemis rally. They demonize the man. They're like, hey, all your problems are because of this guy. All your financial woes are because of this guy. We're going to do him in since we can't find his Paul. Or Aristarchus is the guy, when Paul is arrested and he's going to be sent to Rome to stay in trial, the trip is miserable. Shipwrecked, spends a night and a day in the sea. He's got people trying to kill him. He's hungry. He's cold. Aristarchus goes with him. He's not arrested. He's not going to go stand trial anywhere. But his man Paul is going, he's going to go with him. And when, when, when Paul is, is in prison, and, and Paul is concerned, and, and, and Paul is trying to figure out, like, how am I going to eat and live indoors? Because when you were imprisoned in Rome, like, one of the ways they kept costs down is they just didn't feed you. They didn't clothe you. You had to do that yourself. Paul is fortunate enough to be under house arrest, right? But, but Aristarchus, he's with Paul in the midst of this. And Paul's got this, you know, soldier chained to him 24-7. He's dependent on other people, like, to give him money if he's going to survive there. In the first century, when you were in prison, it wasn't just something shameful for you. It was shameful for the people who knew you. And so when you got arrested, people put distance between themselves and you. They didn't want that kind of shame. Paul had all kinds of people abandon him. Aristarchus stood by his side. Paul's like, listen, when the going gets tough, Aristarchus isn't going anywhere. When a bottom falls out of your life, he's going to be standing there right next to you. Or Paul is like, hey, let me, let me, tell, you, let me tell you about Epaphras. He's one of yours. He's praying for you. He's working for you. See, Epaphras is this guy who, who lives in Colossia. He, he travels to Ephesus, I don't know, business trip or something. While he's there, he meets Paul. And Paul's life, his story about who Jesus is, they are so compelling that Epaphras gives his life to Christ. And after spending time with Paul, he goes back to Colossia. And now, now Epaphras' story, and his life are so compelling that people all over the city, they are surrendering their lives to Jesus, so much so that a church is born there. Paul's like, Colossians, let me tell you about this guy. Every time I turn around, I'm catching him praying for you. He is doing every, he's working his fingers to the bone, doing everything he knows how to do to make sure that you have an opportunity to grow up in Jesus. Or Paul's like, hey, let me tell you about Nympha and the church that meets in her home. See, first century, churches don't have buildings like this. If they're going to come together as a community of people the way God designed them to and worship together, 
They needed somebody who's got enough money and a big enough home who's going to let them do that at their place. Nympha is well-resourced enough, mission-minded enough that she's like, hey, I'll absorb the cost. Come do church at my house. The church in Laodicea has a place to worship as a community because of her. These are the kind of people he's running with. And unless you think, well, man, everybody in Paul's life is perfect. Like, nobody ever put a toe out of line. Uh Uh-uh. Like, every one of these people, including Paul, they have a story of redemption that they can tell about themselves. We, we know a couple of them. Because the next two people talk, Paul talks about, we know some of their story. Like he talks about Mark. Mark is, is Barnabas' cousin. Paul and, and, and Barnabas take Mark on one of their first missionary journeys. And, and Mark thinks ministry is going to be glamorous and it's going to be fun and it's going to be exciting. And then he gets into ministry. And he's like, this is hard, and people are trying to kill us, and we're hungry, and we're working like crazy. This is miserable. And so at one point, Mark's like, Paul, Barnabas, I am out. You you, you guys are going to get yourselves killed. You're going to get me killed in the process. I don't need this. I'm gone. And he abandons them. Goes back home where it's going to be safe and comfortable. But he gets there, and Mark can't shake the fact that God has called him into this. And so when Barnabas comes back, he gets back on a horse and he goes out on a missionary journey with Barnabas. And then later on, he partners with Peter. Most scholars believe Mark is a scribe who physically writes out the gospel of Mark and the book of 1 Peter as Peter dictates them to him. And then later, he gets back into ministry with Paul. Paul will write later, he is useful to me. He's with him now as he's in Rome writing this letter. Or Paul will write about Onesimus. If you remember our series on the book of Philemon, we we talked about how Philemon is this guy living in Colossia. He has this indentured servant named Onesimus who does not like his job, doesn't want to work there. So he takes advantage of Philemon's trust, robs the guy blind, takes off to Rome where he's going to start a new life and live on the money he stole from Philemon. But again, trouble is he runs into this Paul guy. And Paul's life and his story of Jesus are so compelling, it causes Onesimus to give his life to Christ. And as Onesimus dives into ministry with Paul, he gets to this place where he's like, every relationship I have, it needs to be impacted by my relationship with Jesus. I got to go back. I got to make things right with Philemon. And so he does. See, These are the people Paul is running with. These are the people that are in his crew. Again, they're not perfect. They all have a story of redemption they can tell about themselves. But but Paul, he has surrounded himself with faithful people, with people that are going to be there when things get tough, with people who have a heart for evangelism, with people who are passionate about discipleship. He surrounded himself with generous people, with people who are doing everything they could to see the image of Jesus formed in them. And as Paul describes for us the people who he's doing life with, Paul is pointing us for our first truth about community. And that truth is simply this. A genuine gospel community is a critical factor for us adulting in Jesus. If I am serious about growing up in the Lord, i got to have a genuine gospel community around me. See, as Paul talks about his people, he's, he's 
indirectly encouraging us to think about ours. So again, just let me ask you, who's at the center of your world? Like, we all have people at the center. We all have people on the periphery. Oftentimes, you don't get to choose the people on the periphery. You have people, they're in your life. You work with them. You live in the neighborhood with them. You see them regularly in public. I get that. You have people who you are trying to do relationship to share Jesus with them. But Paul's pushing us to think about who is at the center. Again, who gets the best of my time? Who actually has the ability to influence my life? Paul's like, listen, have you surrounded yourself with spiritual beasts? Or Paul, Paul, in all his bluntness, would, would ask us, hey, the center of your world, are you running with a herd of idiots? He's just blunt like that. I don't know what his problem was, right? He's like, listen, do you, do you, like, do you have people at the center of your life that not only are, they care nothing about how you're doing spiritually, how you're growing up in Jesus, but just the opposite. They are going to push you towards selfishness and hedonism. Do you have people at the center of your world who are going to say things to you like, hey, if it feels good, do it. Nobody has a right to tell you how to live your life. That's yours. You just do, do, you, you, do, do you, brah. Do you have people at the center of your world who are going to say to you, what, what, the Bible? Are you nuts? That book's archaic. That book is narrow-minded. That book is all kinds of phobic. Why would you try and live your life that way? Paul's like, listen, if those are the people at the center of your world, that's herd of idiot talk. They are not going to help you adult in Jesus. Or Paul would say, hey, listen, the, the people at the center of your world, are they nothing more than a, a club for nice people? Sure, they're, they're not going to encourage you to do the wrong thing, but they're not going to push you to be any better. The people at the center of your world, sure, they're, they're nice people, they're moral people. You're not going to get dirty hanging around them. But they are not going to stretch and challenge and encourage you to really grow up. They're not going to regularly push you out of your comfort zone and into something new. Paul's like, listen, if, if, if you are serious about adulting in Jesus, you're going to have people at the center of your life who are spiritual beasts, people who are serious about their faith, who are serious about bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear here. See, wisdom, wisdom would, would have us look for people to put at the center of our lives who are going to do two things. Wisdom's going to have us look for people who, who are going to lift us up. Lift us up. Proverbs says it this way. Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. You know, you don't even have to be doing something wrong to get burned. You don't. You just got to be willing to be a companion of a fool. You, all you got to do is get close enough to somebody who's burning their life down to the ground, and you get burned yourself. You, you don't have to do it. They'll do it for you. Paul's like, listen, listen, you need faithful people, trustworthy people, people who are passionate to see others find Jesus, people who are hungry to help other people grow up in their faith. You want people who are generous, people who are serious and introspective themselves. These are the kind of people you want to surround yourself with. 
Paul is saying, listen, you want to know what your future looks like? Just look at the people you surrounded yourself with. They will shape you. You you want people who are going to lift you up. Not only so, wisdom would say, hey, you want people that are going to pull you back. You want somebody who's going to lift you up, you also want somebody who's going to pull you back. Wisdom, Wisdom says it to us this way. The wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The the, the people who will come to you directly and say something, not because they're mad about what you did or didn't do, not because they've been impacted personally, but because they genuinely care about you and the direction of your life. Those are the kind of people you want. The the kind of people who, who will come to you and, and they will have a conversation that's uncomfortable for you and it's uncomfortable for them. The, the, the people who will come knowing they, they might risk you being upset with them. They might risk the relationship altogether. But they care more about you than they care about being comfortable. Those are the kind of people you want in your world. You, you, can, you can have somebody who just... <laughs> right? That's comfortable. It's easy. People who just tell you what you want to hear, they're great. But they don't help you. They will not help you adult in Jesus. Somebody with enough backbone to come to you and say, hey, listen, I could be wrong. But this thing that I think I see, I don't think this is okay. I could be misinformed. But this thing I, I perceive to be in your life, I don't think this is wise. Those are people that will pull you back. Those are people who will help you adult in Jesus. And so as Paul begins, he, he, he points us to this first truth. That this, it's found in the crew, this idea that a genuine gospel community, this is a critical factor if we're going to adult in Jesus. So the first truth is found in the crew. The, the second truth is found in the mission. It's found in the mission. And the second truth that points us to the preeminence of mission in community. The preeminence of mission in community. Now this truth, it's, it's not intuitive. It's, it's, also, it's oftentimes like it runs against the grain of something deep inside of us. But it's absolutely huge if we're going to adult well. Let me try and illustrate this truth in Paul's life. So, so Paul is writing this letter as he's under house arrest. If you could sit down with Paul and be like, hey. How's it going? Paul would, if he's, he'd tell you. It's going, it's, it's hard. Like up to this point, Paul has been unfairly accused of things he never did. He has been arrested and with, with no legal precedence to do so. He has been imprisoned. He has been robbed of justice. Again, they ship him off to Rome to stand trial for something that he did not do, or he could lose his life for this thing. Paul is shipwrecked along the way. He, has, he, he, he spends a night and a day in the sea. He's cold, he's hungry, he's wet, he's miserable. Paul has people trying to kill him all the time. And some of these people, like, the level of hate is ridiculous. Paul has people put their hand on the Bible and say, I swear to God, I will not eat another thing, I will not drink another thing until that man is dead. That's a whole nother level of hate. Paul gets to Rome. 
You know, again, he's under house arrest. He's got to provide, you know, he needs people to give him money if he's going to eat and live indoors. People are abandoning him right, left, and center. And all the while, he's got these churches that he has planted where the weight of leadership for these churches was, just rests squarely on his shoulders as they are attacked from, from hyper-legalism, from without, hedonism from within. And he feels that. If you were to sit down with Paul and be like, hey, how's it going? How's that church plant thing coming along? Paul would tell you, life and ministry are hard. God has been good. He's been faithful. But it's tough. Now, as Paul is writing here in Colossians, and and you see this in his other letters as well, Paul will talk about the comfort that he found in the people he was with how they proved to be a comfort to me. Regularly in his letters, he writes about, man, these people that I'm doing life with, my crew, they play a significant role in me being able to stand up under the pressure that life and ministry is consistently bringing to bear down on my life. And yet, Paul is sending his crew away. He says, Tychicus, he's like a brother to me. I'm sending him to you. Onesimus, he's he's like my son. I'm sending him to you. Mark, he is useful to me. I'm sending him to you. Now, why would Paul take these people who have been just played a critical role in comforting him and giving him the kind of help and strength that he needs to get through life and ministry. Why is he going to take them and just send them to Colossia? I would argue it's because Paul believed in the preeminence of mission in the midst of community. See, these people, they've been a huge blessing to Paul, a huge comfort to him. But Paul believes in the mission He believes that part of the mission of the church is to help people grow up to become like Jesus. He wants to do everything he can to see as many people adult in Christ as he possibly can. And yeah, these guys, they're a huge comfort to him. The community that he has means so much to him. But Paul is willing to give up some of what he wants so that people who have a need, a missional need, They can find it. He's willing to sacrifice part of what he wants community to be for him so that people who need to grow up in Jesus can find it. And so he will send people away who are a comfort to him so that other people can grow up. The mission was more important to Paul. He's going to sacrifice what he wants community to be so that somebody can find what they don't have and what they need. Now, churches all across the country struggle with this dynamic. In churches, you work so hard to try and build the kind of community we've been seeing Paul talk about. Like, you know, in most churches today, the strategy they use is small groups. And so your, your hope is that you would, you would have small groups form in your church where people are, are pulling each other back and lifting each other up and where people are growing into spiritual beasts and they're coming alongside of other folks and helping them do the same and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. And it's when you, when you see that develop in your church, you should celebrate that. But oftentimes what will happen is you'll get a group like that. 
And because people are hungry for that, that group will fill up. You get another group like that, and people are hungry, and that group fills up. And so these healthy, Christ-centered missional groups, they all get, they're all full. And so you can get to this place where all your groups are full, and then somebody new shows up at church, and they need a Christ-centered community. But you can't find it. And it's not because it doesn't exist in the church. It's because all the groups that have it are full. And there's this dynamic that oftentimes plays itself out in those groups where, where people are like, man, this community is so good. It is helping me grow so much. It is such a comfort to me. I don't want to do what I need to do to make room in this group. I'm going to just keep my group. And the new people, I hope they can find what they need, just not in my group, not at our expense. The, the, the comfort and benefit that a good Christ-centered community provides becomes more important than the mission of seeing people grow up in Jesus. Groups become unwilling to give up what they want community to be for them so that somebody who needs it can find it. Paul was like, no, not doing it. I will, I will sacrifice what I want community to be for me so that somebody who needs it can find it. Now, when we talk about our church and we talk about community here, I've got dreams. Dreams for what that's going to continue to grow into. Because there, there, there are groups here where that kind of Christ-centered community, it's there. And my... my what part of my dream for our church is that that would continue to grow, that there would, the groups that have it would continue to grow in it, the groups that are, are just beginning to get that, that they would get more and more of it. I want this to be a place where people walk in, it's like, man, there are folks here who want to lift me up. There are folks here who want to pull me back. I'm running into these, these people who are just passionate about growing themselves and about seeing the kingdom of heaven come to bear on earth. There is some genuine community here. My dream is that, that we, we would just continue to grow in that. But my dream is also that those of us who have that now, or those of us who grow into that in the future, that we would be missional. That the mission would be preeminent. That we would, we would ever be asking ourselves, okay, what do we need to do in our group to make sure there's room for somebody else to find what we have found, for what's been so valuable to us to be accessible to somebody who doesn't have it but needs it. That, that our groups would be going, hey, do, do we need to, to send somebody out? Do we need to plant somebody? Do we need to cut this thing in half? There's all kinds of strategies for how you can do this. But our groups would be going, hey, we are willing to give up what we want community to be just for us so that somebody who doesn't have it yet can find it here. And here's the thing that I've observed. As I've been part of groups, as I've observed groups over the years, the groups who do that, it's hard. I won't sugarcoat it. I won't bait and switch you. It will cost you. Like you get to this place where you know these people and you've been doing life together and you're invested in one another's lives. It's real, it, it is hard to make room. It will cost you something. 
But again and again, the groups who are willing to do that, the adulting those people do in Jesus, it's amazing. And the groups that won't do that, it's way easier for them. Way easier. But they tend to plateau and then stagnate. So Paul's like, hey, community's great. I love it. But I'm going to make sure that the mission is more important to me. So, two truths about community and adulting in Jesus. If we're going to adult in Jesus, we've got to have a genuine gospel community. If we're going to adult in Jesus, the mission has to take priority. So, as we finish, I want to pray. And um, just for, for some of us, I, it, like, I want to pray for some of us who need that kind of community. We have not found that yet. And, and if that is you, I would encourage you, fill out your connection card and let us know. Consider being part of a small group. Look, you will not find the perfect small group, all right? But the likelihood of you finding people who are running hard after Jesus who will partner with you in that, it goes way up when you're in a group. It goes way down when you're doing that alone. And, and if, if you're in a group now, and you know, like, our group exceeds the spiritual salary cap. We're way over the limit. There's like eight of us in here, and six of us could all be leading our own group. If that's you, would, again, fill out your connection card if you'd be willing to sit and talk with us and strategize with us about what we could do to make more room in your group. And finally, if, if, if over the course of this series we've been, a t- you know, we've been talking about adulting in Jesus, if at some point you've figured out, I need to surrender my life to Christ before I'm ever going to grow up in him, and you're at a place where you're ready to do that, Again, whether you're, you're with us right now in the room, whether you're watching online, I'd love to pray with and for you about that. So let's pray together and then we'll continue in worship. Father, thank you so much just for Paul and for his boldness. Father, just as we think about this idea of community, for those of us who are running alone and know this needs to change. For those of us who have been holding back and know we need to be more honest. Those of us who are just cynical and uh, always looking to crack a joke because if things get too serious, I might have to get real. Whatever, whatever this next step we need to take in community is, God, I pray that you would make that clear to us. Just pray for courage to get into a group, to be honest, to ask somebody to come alongside of us and partner with us. And Father, for those of us who have this kind of community, God, I pray you would do a work in our hearts where we would be willing to give up some of what we want community to be for ourselves. So that the next wave of people you are bringing can find what we have found and what they need. And Father, just if if for some of us who are here today 
And we've been riding along throughout the course of this series. And we realize first step for us in growing up in Jesus is to give our lives to him. And so we just confess, God, we are broken. We've sinned. We've lived our lives like we have the right to call the shots as though we're in control. And we just confess we're not. We are not God. That is you. Forgive us, please. Not because of how smart we are or how moral or good we are. Forgive us because we put our faith in Jesus, your son, who lived a sinless life, who died in the place of sinners, who you rose from the dead to prove it was all true. We surrender ourselves to him Help us to begin this journey where we follow him and grow up in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we continue in worship this morning, we're going to do so as we share communion together. And communion is, is a unique time of worship. New Testament tells us that a number of things happen when we receive communion. That in communion, Jesus is present in a way that I struggle to, 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 to put into words. Jesus, we participate in Christ. He is present with us in this unique form of worship. The New Testament tells us that when we receive communion, that we are remembering Christ. We're, we're taking time to just set everything else aside and focus our hearts and minds on the person and work of Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that when we receive communion, that we proclaim Christ until he returns. This is an I believe kind of moment. And so today, if you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to join us in this. Now, from a, a mechanics perspective, uh, the elements for communion are in the seat right in front of you, and you can reach forward and grab that anytime that you like right there in the seat towards the, the, the right-hand side of that seat. And you have both your bread and your juice in this. Your bread is on one side and the juice is on the other, and there are tabs there. And we're going to receive the elements together as a church family. But before we do, we want to remember the words of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples to eat. And he said to them, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. After supper, we're told that Jesus took the cup, that he gave it for all of them to drink. He told them, this is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant. My blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So I just want to invite you to go ahead and open up that first tab to take out the bread. And together as a church family, we will receive this. The body of Christ broken for you, church.
You just turn this over and open up the second tab. And again, as a church family, we'll receive this together. The blood of Christ shed for you, church. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his body broken, his blood shed. Thank you for this time where we can worship. Where we can participate in him. Where we can proclaim him. Fathers, we leave this place and we go to the places where you've called us to live. Just in who we are, what we do, and what we say. Help us just to proclaim Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.